This podcast is sponsored by Doc2Doc, the personal lending platform designed for doctors by doctors. Doc2Doc believes that traditional lenders overestimate the risk of lending money to doctors, focusing too much on the challenges of their financial past and giving them insufficient credit for the promise of their financial future. On the Herd podcast, our goal is educating, empowering, and engaging our listeners, including doctors, in the best ways that we can. We love what Doc2Doc is doing within our community and encourage you to visit their website at www.doctodoclending.com forward slash FPD. That's www.doc, the number two, doclending.com forward slash FPD to learn more today. A 30-year-old woman has constant pain over her bladder. She goes to the bathroom multiple times an hour, sometimes even waking up in the middle of the night to urinate. The pain is dull and achy, but sometimes feels like a burning sensation when peeing. She's been treated for multiple UTIs, even without bacteria seen on urine culture. Sometimes the pain feels even worse after having certain types of food, such as pasta or even spicy foods. Sex is really painful, and sometimes the pain lingers even after intercourse. The pain is debilitating, and she's tired of taking antibiotics. Why is this happening? What can she do about it? She's starting to feel so helpless. Welcome to The Hurt by Dr. Mira Kirpaker and Dr. Alopi Patel. We are the female pain docs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health with discussions of evidence-based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle modifications, and more. The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary. Welcome, Dr. Bellani. We appreciate you for being on today's episode. You have a lot of expertise in treating pelvic pain, and we are so excited to hear your insight on interstitial cystitis. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us more about what interstitial cystitis is. So I'm going to go first by the definition of interstitial cystitis, and then I think we can talk a little bit more on why it's so misdiagnosed. So I see by definition is when there's a disruption in what's called the gag layer of the bladder. The gadder is also called the glycosaminoglycan layer. You can think of this layer like a protective coat for the bladder, okay? And we don't necessarily know why, although we believe there's an inflammatory component to it. In a certain subset of patients, there is a disruption in this gag layer, meaning there's almost like tiny holes in this gag layer, okay? And so that's why often when there's tiny holes in this bladder, there's certain foods that can cause an increase in pain or um, certain positions, or if they hold urine for too long, that can increase pain. Um, this is by definition interstitial cystitis. Interstitial cystitis was diagnosed, I mean, back in the 1800s. It's been a lot around forever. Um, and one of the first urologists to really diagnose this by cystoscopy was a man by the name of Dr. Hunter. That I bring that name up because 20% of patients with interstitial cystitis actually have something called Hunter's lesions. These are areas of inflammation that we can find in the bladder during a cystoscopy. That's only 20% of patients with interstitial cystitis. 
80 to 90% of patients with interstitial cystitis have normal appearing bladders. I think this is a really important distinction because especially when we're, we're dealing with this entity, because there's this misnomer that you have to do a cystoscopy to diagnose IC, and that's not true. The second thing I want to say about this, and I'm sorry to go on my little rant. I just, you can see, I feel so passionately about this topic. The second thing that I kind of want to go through is the fact that with interstitial cystitis, we often don't even call it that anymore because that term really doesn't mean anything. What is interstitial cystitis? So in terms of the U.S. and the AUA guidelines for the Neurological Association, we call this bladder pain syndrome. In Europe and other parts of the European nations, they call it painful bladder syndrome. People can call it semantics. The whole concept is understanding that with IC, this is a bladder-centric diagnosis, meaning the bladder is the center of the diagnosis, not the pelvic floor, not the other nerves, not the muscles. You know what I mean? The bladder is really the center of this. And I think that's key to understanding it. I really like how you broke it down because you're right. It really does come down to what part of the body is in pain, which even though the the aspects of interstitial cystitis, like you said, may not be the primary area, it's the bladder that's causing pain. And I like that for patients too, they can call it painful bladder syndrome or bladder pain syndrome, and it's easier for them to understand as well. So you mentioned that a cystoscopy is not needed for diagnosis. So how is the diagnosis made? So I want to back up for a second. The reason that the AUA does not recognize cystoscopy as first line for diagnosis, and I should clarify that, it's not first line for diagnosis of interstitial cystitis, is because, as we just said, 80 to 90% of patients have normal appearing bladders, okay? So putting a scope into someone's bladder and saying that we have to see something to diagnose IC, as you can see, would yield false negatives. The other reason that we don't, really needs cystoscopy to diagnose interstitial cystitis in this sense is because oftentimes with interstitial cystitis, even just placing the scope into the bladder can cause an uptick in patient symptoms. So I kind of want to back it up for a second because back in the day, the way that they used to diagnose IC, and I know you know this being like a pain physician, but for all our listeners out there, medicine evolves. It changes consistently. You know what I mean? So back in the day, they would diagnose IC with a cystoscopy, even when patients have had negative or normal findings. And what they would do was called a hydrodention. So they would put a lot of water into the bladder to blow it up like a balloon, but blow it up even more than the bladder should be blown up. And they would look for things called glomerulation. This is essentially like, have you ever seen like if you don't sleep at night and your eye gets super red and you have like the, the redness in your eye? That's what a glomerulation looks like under a cystoscope. The problem with this is that as medicine was evolving, they realized if you hydrodistend anyone's bladder, you would have glomerulation. So that can't be something that we use to diagnose IC. You see what I'm saying? So I will often have patients come into my office and say, I have a diagnosis of IC. They don't meet criteria in terms of symptoms, no frequency, persistent urgency, the biggest one being pain with bladder filling. Well, how do you know you have IC? Oh, I had a cystoscopy with a hydrodistension and I have glomerulation. Oh, well, that doesn't necessarily mean you have IC. And the reason for that is because as you probably see in your clinical practice, patients who have a diagnosis of IC, and you guys can't see me, but I'm putting little air quotes, can actually have pelvic floor dysfunction, can actually have 
other neuropathic symptoms can actually have vulvodynia. So you can misdiagnose this very easily, which is the key here. Again, I you touched on some very important points, right? And there are there's such a spectrum to a lot of the the symptoms as well, especially because there's often overlapped with other types of diagnoses. What are the primary symptoms do you see patients present with when they have painful bladder syndrome or bladder pain syndrome? And I love this this distinction. The biggest symptom that we use in terms of AUA guidelines to define interstitial cystitis or bladder pain syndrome is pain with bladder filling. That's really an important symptom. That's not pain during urination. That's not pain after you pee. That's pain with bladder filling. So that's the biggest symptom that really we use to kind of put patients in, say, you know, I have a higher suspicion that this patient might have interstitial cystitis. Now, the vast majority of patients will have that symptom. And remember that when I say pain and you say pain, we can mean discomfort. We can mean irritation. Pain to us is any type of bothersome feeling that you're getting. You know what I mean? Um, Because it's a quality of life measure. But in addition, they can have things like frequency. Okay. So if you go to the bathroom, like, you know, some patients will say, I go to the bathroom every half an hour, every 15 minutes. Okay. A key symptom, because I think as we go through other diagnoses, we'll see why that interplays. Persistent urgency is another big one. Persistent urgency is key because it's not leakage. It's the feeling of I got to go, I pee, and I still feel like I have to go. Um, And that's another big one that many patients have. The other ones that I take a look for, I always ask for is nocturia. Do you wake up at night to pee? If so, how many times? Um, And if some patients have any pain during urination or after urination, this is more of trying to determine if we're missing something. You know what I mean? So is, are we misdiagnosing this for UTI? Are we misdiagnosing this for vulvodynia or pelvic floor dysfunction? That's kind of the gamut of things that we want to ask or really look for in patients who think that they might have IC or who are wondering a little bit more. Right. And that's a very important distinction to make because I'm sure that many patients are inaccurately diagnosed with UTIs before they kind of get to this conclusion. How often do you see that? Oh my God, all the time. I mean, you know, I would say seven out of 10 patients that come into my office are misdiagnosed um, and are given the diagnosis of recurrent UTIs with negative cultures, oftentimes being on long-term antibiotics, leading to antibiotic resistant and bigger problems, Um, or um, patients who have a diagnosis of things like recurrent BV and recurrent yeast even, you know what I mean? Like, and, and, and so they're told, oh, it's because of that, but really, you know, there's something else going on. Right. And I've had several patients like that in my practice too, where I have to send them to a urologist because they're like, I've been diagnosed with persistent UTIs, but it's not that it's something else. And I'm like, you're at the right person, but you also need to go to see another person as well. Right. So we work hand in hand. Now, another symptom that I often see patients report is pain with sex. So can you can you talk about that as well? Because often a lot of our pelvic pain patients have that. And that's a great point. And there's two reasons for this. Okay. Number one, and this is where this is where our collaboration comes into play. Number one, if patients have interstitial cystitis, so they have, you know, an intrinsic discrepancy in this gag layer of the bladder. Think of it like leaky gut of the bladder, right? Like so we think of leaky gut of the gut and think of this as leaky gut of the bladder. They can develop what you and I will call acquired neuroproliferation or central sensitization, meaning 
that they have more nerve fibers in that area that are extra sensitive for whatever reason, okay? So pain with sex can develop, number one, during penetration and hitting, hitting the bladder during, like, vaginal and penile sex. That's one reason. Number two, which you know, is that 80% of patients with interstitial cystitis also have a comorbidity of pelvic floor dysfunction. And this is really what came first, the chicken or the egg. Was there this pain in the bladder that caused them to clench and develop these hypertonic pelvic floor muscles that can often cause pain with penetration, especially deep penetrative intercourse? Or did they always have pelvic floor muscles that were more tense and now the bladder contracts, the pelvic floor doesn't fully relax, they leave a little bit of the urine in their bladder, they already have a disruption in the gag layer, which increases the central sensitization. You know, where on this cycle are we? And we never really, and patients always want to know the answer to that. And I totally see why, because you're like, what came first? But more often than not, it's the hardest thing to decipher. But the most important part, as you know, is treating both of these entities. So those are the two biggest reasons that patients with interstitial cystitis will have pain with sex. And kind of now maneuvering towards the treatment aspect, how can you talk our listeners through how the treatment plan actually goes because there are so many layers to it? Yes. So first of all, like I said, I think the big thing, number one, when you're, when you're looking at this diagnosis is really being able to phenotypically divide patients into two groups, hunter's lesions, non-hunter's lesions, because Phenotypically, these patients respond to treatments very differently. For example, for patients with Hunter's lesions, which, by the way, have only been really seen in the literature and having done this now for 10 years in patients over the age of 55. So when patients come in at the age of 30 and tell me that they have a Hunter's lesion, it's more likely misdiagnosed as hydrodistension with filmarulation, which, again, does not say anything, right? Um, but Hunter's lesions patients really respond well to things like fulguration of Hunter's lesions or respond well to actually endoscopic steroid. We put a little bit of steroid into the Hunter's lesions, and that's very helpful for patients with interstitial cystitis because it really decreases that pain with bladder filling. Um, it prevents the whole cycle of pain from occurring. Now let's talk about the other 90% of patients who are don't have Hunter's lesions, who don't have inflammatory areas in the bladder. These patients are oftentimes where it's important to take this as a stepwise pattern. So if you look at AUA guidelines, the first line of treatment for interstitial cystitis is pelvic floor physical therapy. Um, medications, things like hydroxyzine or other types of anti-inflammatories to, to try to decrease inflammation in the bladder. We use the side effects of these medications as benefits. So things like hydroxyzine can make patients tired. So we say take it at night because it'll make you sleep through the night and you won't wake up to pee. Again, understanding that, that even these medications take around eight to 10 weeks to really reach their full effect. So now the other aspect of treating patients, as you had mentioned earlier on in our discussion, is something known as a bladder insulation. Um, when interstitial cystitis first came about this, this whole diagnosis and people were trying to understand it, they used to do what's called a bladder sensitivity test, which means they used to put potassium into the bladder, which essentially if someone has a disruption in the gag layer will cause them to flare. How barbaric, right? Like you put something into someone who's already in pain into their bladder to make them flare more. And then you say, aha, now you have IC. Now we're going to try to figure out how to, how to fix this. Um, so now what we do is really what we call an anesthetic challenge. So we actually place a bladder installation into someone's um, 
bladder to see if they respond. Because if we put in insulation, which is normally composed of things like lidocaine, marcaine, heparin, into the bladder to recoat the bladder, also numbing the bladder, right, lidocaine, and they feel better, then we know this is a bladder-centric diagnosis. We also use this as treatment because when patients get installations done weekly for about six to eight weeks, they can really recoat this area of the bladder. And by recoating the area, they can really get symptomatic relief. Um, it is a really, you know, patients often get scared when we talk about installations because you're saying, I'm going to put a catheter in your bladder every single week and I'm going to put this medication in. But I will tell you the benefit that they feel from a set of the installations can be life-altering. So that's another treatment strategy that we use. Even if you look at AUA guidelines, that's the third line. But as urologists or urogynecologists, we often say, it's the third line simply because the first two lines are all conservative measures. You know what I mean? So they'll say like things like diet, which I feel very strongly about the IC diet because well-meaning doctors will hand out lists of foods and tell patients not to eat them because if they have IC, this is the treatment. And Dr. Patel, I cannot tell you how wrong that is. First of all, every single food is in the IC diet, right? So now patients can get nutritionally depleted, okay? Number two, if you look at the data on IC and diet, there was a huge amount of selection bias in it, meaning the patients that were responding to being diet sensitive in the questionnaire were selected for because the patients that were responding were the ones who were diet sensitive. So you see what I'm saying? So, so even that data to say that 80% of patients with IC are diet sensitive is not even true. Um, so, and everyone's triggers are different. So that's like generally like when you use that as a first line of treatment, I think it confuses patients when not done appropriately, like with someone who, who knows how to actually perform an elimination diet. And number two, it's not helpful. That's another thing I want to bring up because diet and IC is something that people, you know, that, that's probably the most popularized thing and, and it's not necessarily the right thing. That's such a good point because quality of life is also very important in all pain patients, right? And how often are we going to tell someone to take away anything and everything that might give them joy, including chocolate or alcohol or whatever it may be, right? Right. Yes. I like, this is exactly what, that's the exact phrase that I say to every patient. This is the quality of life measure. If someone said, give up your coffee or your tea, and that's all you have to do, I would say, I'm not sure I can do that in the morning to function. You know what I mean? Like, and so what other treatment strategies do we have? And when we leave patients with nothing, that's not fair, you know, and nor is that actual treatment. Right. And I think you touched upon something so important, which is finally evolving in medicine. That is, this is not just putting the onus on the patient that you have to do these lifestyle modifications and only then will you feel better. It's a collaborative approach. Quality of life is a big part of it. And we can't just say to cut one whole thing out. Yes, we can say to reduce it. Oftentimes patients will be like, well, should I stop eating sugar completely or alcohol or coffee or whatever it may be? And I have to remind them it's a balance, right? identify it, but if you want to go ahead and have something, that's that's okay too. Um, you mentioned something uh, that I want our patients to clarify on as well, fulgration. Uh, can you mention what fulgration is for our listeners? Yeah. 
So fulguration is when the, the area that we find of inflammation, which we now call Hunter's lesions, we take what's called electrocautery. So we take a little lead and we place it into the cystoscope and we burn that area off. Now, the whole, so in, in, I'm going to say something else now. So the whole reason that we used to do this is because we believe that if we burned off the Hunter's lesion and that was the source of pain, that patients would get relief. That is true, okay? However, and, and I wrote the data on this, so I feel strongly about it, patients would only get relief for somewhere around three months. So that's when, about seven years ago, we wrote a study and we did a clinical trial looking at endoscopic steroid, um, utilizing endoscopic steroid into the hunter's lesions instead of just fulguration. So here we actually place a small amount of steroid into the hunter's lesions, and then we burn a tiny bit over it. The reason being that if you do fulguration consistently every three months for long periods of time, you can cause bladder wall tethering and you can decrease bladder capacity, which ultimately for someone who's already going to the bathroom a lot or has persistent urgency is not an adequate solution. Um, so fulguration used to be, it ha has been thought to be part part and parcel of treatment, and it is, but only when used correctly. So that's why we want to do fulguration, but we want to limit the amount that we fulgurate. So if we do fulguration and the patient gets relief, but it comes back within three months, the next step should be an endo putting endoscopically placing a steroid to the area. Okay. And that's great for our listeners to know as well. I also had another follow-up question. I'm anesthesia background, so I, I was interested in this aspect as well. How often are these procedures done with anesthesia or are they often office-based and done without anesthesia? I always do them with anesthesia. Um, I do them with, always do them with anesthesia for a few reasons. Um, number one, most patients with interstitial cystitis, especially if they have Hunter's lesions, I mean, and remember I said they often, more often than not always occur after the age of 55. So we believe that there's chronic inflammation that has probably been occurring throughout their 20s and 30s that has kind of led to actual visualization of inflammation because inflammation can often be microscopic by nature. Um, so they have a decreased bladder capacity in general, okay? And they already have pain. So for me to do that in the office, to place the cystoscope and, and try to fulgurate or try to endoscopically place the steroid doesn't make sense. Um, I think just to even place them under some, and, and I think most of the anesthesiologists that I've worked with, and I'm so excited to be able to work with you, just do like a light sedation. You know what I mean? It's, it's, and it's because the procedure often takes 15 to 30 minutes. It's nothing that takes a super long time. But comfort is key here. We're already talking about patients who are in pain. I don't see the risk-benefit ratio of having to put someone through more pain and then potentially not doing my job correctly. Right. Absolutely. And speaking about that as well, what do you think is the most important part of the treatment plan in terms of we spoke about installations, lifestyle modifications, medications? What do you think is the most important aspect? Multifactorial care. I think that if, you know we cannot treat IC like we do a common cold and say here is one medication and here you go and you're going to get better because there it just as you're aware multiple different pain generators and addressing each of those pain generators at the same time collaborative care with pain management and other doctors and utilizing different tools so perhaps doing PT with installation at the same time is really what gets patients accelerated um, and efficient care. Okay. And another follow-up question is, if you had to give patients one advice, if they had to pick one thing that they really had to focus on because it is multi 
factorial, like you said, but oftentimes there's a lot to focus on. What would you say that patients should focus the most on? You know, I think it's a hard question simply because it's so individualized. So, you know, I think if, if the generator was really intrinsic bladder, then yes, installations can be super helpful in addition to anti-inflammatory medications. I think that if the generator is more coming from the pelvic floor and the, the bladder, that oftentimes treating the pelvic floor first yields higher results than treating the bladder first. So it's hard for me to kind of, you know, streamline this, but I guess in order to do that, I would say working with a really good specialist is key because for everyone, while that answer will be different, it should be individualized for their care. Absolutely. We spoke about a couple other sort of diagnoses that were, that were associated with interstitial cystitis, but what are some of the more other common diagnoses that are associated? You mentioned pelvic floor dysfunction, vulvodynia, but any other major sort of medical diagnoses that patients should also look out for? Excluding anything like, of course, and that's one reason to do a cystoscopy is excluding anything like bladder cancer, that kind of stuff. Um, I would say the biggest comorbidity that we see with interstitial cystitis is threefold. Number, uh, actually fourfold, is pelvic floor dysfunction is the big one, right? Um, migraines are another one because we think of a headache in the pelvis. Um, PMJ is another one. Um, and then um, rheumatoid arthritis. So there is this question of whether there's an autoimmune etiology to it, um, but it's still not something that has been properly evaluated or, or really researched. Right. Those, those are all good diagnoses for patients to kind of be on top of because I think oftentimes patients may have one or two of those and not realize that it could be either associated with it or potentially even worsened, like with the concept of sensitization that you mentioned. Um, as we're kind of wrap, wrapping up the episode, I wanted to speak to you about your background. So you're, you have a very unique position, which is awesome. So most OBGYNs that complete residency go on to complete various different fellowships, but often it's within their own field of like gynecology or obstetrics, whatever it may be, but you chose to pursue a fellowship in urology, which is amazing. How can you help patients differently than other physicians? You know, I think because I'm able to do more of a systemic approach, meaning I can look at the body as a whole. I'm not looking at just the organ, like just the bladder, just the vagina, just, you know, I'm looking at the entire clinical picture of the pelvis. And I think that's really what he is being able to provide patients with this more of like a, a global picture um, and a holistic approach in that sense. And, and that's really why I did it because I saw patients being tossed around, like you said, from GYN to urologist to pain management to physiatry, and they didn't know where to go and they were lost. And, and then while, while clearly you and I have a different paradigm of care and we speak to each other, a lot of physicians don't. And so patients were left feeling like, who, who do I go to? Who do I trust? And so that's really why I think it's really important to kind of view this from a more global perspective. Right. And I think that's so great for patients to have that OBGYN, women's health focused background, and then have also a special surgical fellowship in urology as well. So that's absolutely amazing. I am blown away by our conversation. I'm so excited to share it with our listeners. Where can our listeners find you? They can find me um, on online. My website is www.pelvicpaindoc.com. I'm on Instagram at the same handle, Pelvic Pain Doc. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Sonia Bolani, and I'm on Facebook at Pelvic Pain Doc as well. 
Thank you, Dr. Bellani, for your time and your insight on painful bladder syndrome or bladder pain syndrome, as we learned. So thank you for your time. It was great having you. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. We would love to hear your thoughts. Visit our Instagram at the female pain docs for more content. Send us an email at the female pain docs at Gmail. If you have any topics in particular, you would like us to discuss. You can also visit our website at www.thefemalepaindocs.com. See you next time.